Chapter 19 Planning the Campaign That evening, the secretary of the Aero Club telephoned Mr. Cumberford to ask if he wished to withdraw his entry from the contest in the coming aviation meet. By no means, was the reply. But you state that Kane is to be aviator, and we are informed that Kane has a broken leg. Leave the entry as it stands. Kane, aviator, said Cumberford positively. Very well, sir, returned the secretary, evidently puzzled. But his friend Burton, who had suggested his telephoning, was highly pleased when he learned Mr. Cumberford's decision. All right, he observed with satisfaction. We'll leave the Kane aircraft on the program, for everyone is talking of the wonderful device, and the announcement of its competition will be the greatest drawing card we have ever had. The entry of Kane, Aviator, will disqualify anyone but Kane from operating the aircraft. And I happen to know his leg is in a plaster cast. He can't use it for months to come. But won't it hurt us to disqualify the Kane aircraft and have it withdrawn at the last moment? inquired the secretary doubtfully. No, for I'm going to spring on the crowd the biggest surprise of the century, the Burton biplane. Are you sure of its success, sir? Absolutely. Kane copied his machine from mine, as I have explained previously to you, and in addition to all the good points he has exhibited, I have the advantage of a perfect automatic balance. If Kane's device had been equipped with that, he wouldn't have fallen the other day. Perhaps Mr. Burton was sincere in saying this. He'd had no opportunity to examine Stephen's latest creation at close quarters. But on the day of the trial at Kane Park, he had observed the fact that Stephen had abandoned the automatic balance he had first patented, and now had recourse to crossed planes. Both Burton and his mechanic considered the original device the best and most practical and they depended upon it for the biggest advertisement of Burton's improved biplane, having, of course, no hint that Stephen had tested it and found it sadly lacking. On the 26th, the Burton flyer was ready for trial, and Tot Tyler, after several attempts, got into the air and made a short flight that filled the heart of Mr. Burton with elation. Curtis and the Rice will do better than that, though, observed the ex-chauffeur. To say nothing of those daredevils, Latham and Hoxie, all improve after a few more trials. I can't promise ever to do better than the other fellows, though. That isn't to be expected, returned Burton. I'm not backing you to excel the performance of the old aviators. That's not my point. The improvements and novelties we have to show will take the wind out of the sails of all the other aeroplanes and result in a flood of orders. Comparing machine for machine, we're years in advance of the Wrights and Curtis, and centuries ahead of those foreign devices. Maybe, admitted Tot, but Kane's airplane is practically the same as your own, and it's still on the program. It won't fly, though, declared Burton with a laugh. Don't worry about anything but your own work, Tyler. Leave all the rest to me. The man knew his employer was playing a hazardous game and that he had stolen outright the Kane aircraft. And while the knowledge did not add to Tot Tyler's nerve or assurance, he was gleeful over the prospect of doing his enemy in, Cumberford. The little fellow was bold enough, even to the point of bravery, 
and fully as unprincipled as his employer. His hatred of Cumberford was so acrid that he would have gone to any length, even without pay, to defeat his plans, and Burton found him an eager and willing tool. Nonetheless, the little man sent a danger ahead and had an idea that trouble was brewing from some unknown source. By this time, Burton had begun a campaign of widespread publicity, and in spite of the long list of famous aviators in the city, the newspapers were filled with pictures of the Burton device and accounts of the marvelous flights of Totham Tyler. Nothing more was heard of the Kane aircraft, but the public had not forgotten it, and many were puzzled that two local airplane makers should be exhibiting identically the same improvements, each claiming to have originated them. As for the visiting aviators, they were interested, but held their peace. The performances at the coming competition would tell the story of supremacy, and whatever good points were displayed by the local inventors could doubtless be adapted to their own aircraft. They waited, therefore, for proof of the glowing claims made in the newspapers. Many promising inventions had turned out to be failures. The public was, to an extent, in the same doubting mood. Kane's magnificent public flight had ended with an accident, while Tyler's preliminary exhibitions were in no way remarkable compared with records already established. The meat would tell the story. Meantime, Orissa completed her repairs. On the day that Steve came home from the hospital in an ambulance, she pushed him in a wheelchair to the hangar and allowed the boy to inspect a perfect aircraft. The young man suffered no pain, and although he was physically helpless, his eye and brain were as keen as ever. Being wheeled around the device so he could observe it from all angles and sides, he made a thorough examination of his sister's work and declared it excellent. You think you can manage it, Riss? he asked, referring to her proposed venture. I am sure I can, she promptly replied. You must understand, all of you, she said, turning to confront Cumberford and Sybil, who were also present. I am not undertaking this flight from choice. Had Steve been able to exhibit his own airplane, I might never have tried to fly alone. But it seems to me that our fortune, my brother's future career, and our friend Mr. Cumberford's investment all hinge upon making a good showing at Dominguez Field. No one but me is competent to properly exhibit the aircraft, to show all its good points, and prove what it is capable of doing. Therefore, I have undertaken to save our reputation and our money, and I am sure that my decision is proper and right. I agree with you, said Steve eagerly. You're a brave girl, Riss. I have to make one request, though, of Mr. Cumberford, she added. What is it, Orissa? he inquired. Do not advertise me as the girl aviator or any such name. I prefer people should remain ignorant of the fact that a girl is operating the Kane aircraft. Can you keep that quiet? I can and I will, he asserted. Indeed, my dear, I much prefer that course. It will be the more interesting when, well, when the discovery is made. I do not wish to become a celebrity. One in the family is more than enough, she said seriously, glancing proudly at Steve. And I'm afraid nice people would think me rather unmaidenly and bold to become a public aviator. I am not freakish. Indeed, I'm not. And only stern necessity induces me to face this ordeal. My dear, 
said Mr. Cumberford, looking at her admiringly. Your feelings should be considered in every possible way. But you must not imagine you're the first female aviator. In Europe, especially in France, a score of women have made successful flights, and not one is considered unwomanly or has forfeited any claim to the world's respect and applause. The most successful aviators of the future, remarked Stephen thoughtfully, are bound to be women. As a rule, they're lighter than men, more supple, active, quick of perception, and less liable to lose their heads in an emergency. The operation of an airplane is, it seems to me, especially fitted to women. Ah, exclaimed Sybil with a whimsical glance at the speaker. I've discovered my future vocation. I shall aviate parties of atmospheric tourists. When the passenger airships are introduced, I'll become the original Sky Motoress, and so I shall win fame and fortune. Steve laughed but shook his head. The airships of the future won't be passenger affairs, he predicted, but individual machines for personal use. They'll be cheaper than automobiles and more useful for they can go directly to any destination in a short airline. Men will use them to go to business trips, women to visit town on shopping expeditions, or to take airing for pleasure. But I'm sure they'll be built for one person. Then I'll have one and become a freelance in the sky, roaming where I may, declared Sybil. This unconventional girl had developed a decided fancy for the inventor and while in his presence it was noticed that she became less reserved and mysterious than at other times. Steve liked Sybil, too, although she was so strong a contrast to his own beautiful sister. When she cared to be agreeable, Miss Cumberford proved interesting and was, Steve thought, good company. Orissa observed that Sybil invariably presented the best side of her character to Steve. While he was in the hospital, the girl visited him daily and now that he had come home again, she passed most of her time at the hangar. Mr. Cumberford was greatly annoyed to learn that the Kane headquarters at Dominguez Field had been given a location in the rear of all the others, where it would be practically unnoticed. Of course, this slight could be blamed to Burton's influence with the Committee of Arrangements, of which he was a member. Burton's own hangar, on the contrary, had a very prominent position. From his man, Brewster, as well as from others, Mr. Cumberford had learned that Burton had hinted he would prevent the Kane aircraft from taking any part in the contests. All these things worried the Kane party, whose anxieties would have been sufficient had they not been forced to encounter the petty malice of Burton. Sybil, silently listening to all that was said, assumed a more mysterious air than usual, and on the day previous to the opening of the great aviation meet, she informed her father that she would not accompany him to Dominguez, where he was bound to attend all the final preparations. The decision surprised him, but being accustomed to his daughter's sudden whims, he made no reply and left her in their rooms at the hotel.